Many years ago, when I was a tad younger, I made a radio documentary about high oil prices and the impact it was having on the North Dakota economy, my first foray into energy and infrastructure. So John, why are you telling us this? Is, is this a confession? Is this something you've been trying to get off your chest for a while? I think it's an interesting backdrop for a series of podcasts that we're creating about energy and infrastructure investment. So where are we relative to where we've come from? And this documentary is a post-Katrina, $100 a barrel, true coming-of-age moment for energy policies around the world that we're starting to shift towards renewable energy. And with that came a lot of new capital focused on infrastructure investment. So you're saying this is kind of a turning point infrastructure and it led to kind of where we are now ironically and coincidentally i think it is and so um let's just have a listen and see what we think today the fourth of july is america's national day people all over the u.s celebrate with flag-waving parades all-american picnics and patriotic fireworks displays here in Williston, North Dakota, a rural community in America's heartland, it's no different. Stop, 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 stop. Are we seriously starting with marching bands and firework displays and patriotic music? Seriously? Unfortunately, yes. And, um, you know, it sets the scene. What, what can I say? Let's yeah. just keep listening. All right, keep going. On the eve of this year's celebration, the main event is dirt track auto racing and a fireworks show at the county fairgrounds. The 4th of July celebrates the birth of a country and U.S. independence from the British Empire over 200 years ago. However, as I watch with fireworks explode above my head with dust and the smell of gasoline hanging in the air, I'm reminded of something President Bush said six months ago in his State of the Union address. Keeping America competitive requires affordable energy. And here we have a serious problem. America is addicted to oil, which is often imported from unstable parts of the world. America is dependent on foreign oil. Stop right there. George Bush. You remember that guy? Remember George Bush. And looking back on that now, ironically, feels like uh, feels like good times for the American presidency. Feels like I missed those days. But it's, it's, it's an interesting reflection on, on where we've come. Do you think the U.S. is still addicted to oil? Yeah, of course. The U.S. is still addicted to oil. But I, I think the difference is in terms of the... The, the energy supply, right? Um, um, they, whereas whereas you, you know, energy, the U.S. is in a much more energy-productive environment than it, than it was. There's more, there's more energy being produced, and I think that's, that's changed dynamics quite a lot on the international scene. It has, and it created a lot of wealth in the U.S. over the last, uh, you know, this was 2005. We're now in 2019, so 14 years, and a lot of wealth has been created as a result of a domestic oil boom that has was reignited sort of, you know, following this era. So uh, let's just continue to listen on. Journalist and author of the book The End of Oil, Paul Roberts, questions whether Americans took Bush's admission seriously. I think Americans said, well, that's great that the, the president is talking about energy efficiency and being addicted to oil. But I think for most Americans, they view him as a president who is, if he's got an allegiance to anything, it's the oil industry. And I don't think they take him too seriously. I think they're, they feel like he's behind the times to begin with. For Americans, filling up at the pump has become expensive over the past two years. With oil prices hanging around $75 a barrel this summer, consumers here in North Dakota have paid up to and over $3 a gallon. Contrast that with the average price paid when President Bush took office in 2001. Back then, Americans were paying only $1.50 a gallon, half of what they're paying this summer. However, that hasn't kept Americans off the highways. 
The American Automobile Association says nearly 41 million Americans will travel more than 50 miles from home over the 4th of July weekend this year. That's a new record, and AAA says 85% of those travelers will be on the highways. But to find out if gas prices were actually affecting people's lifestyles, I spoke to consumers as they fueled up at a local gas station here in Williston. You're heading up to the lake today. Yeah. And you're filling up here. What do you think about the price of fuel? Oh, it's a little high. How high is it right now? $3. Obviously, you're filling up your boat here. Has it prevented you from living your life any of them? Oh, no. No, we're still going to do it. What do you think about gas prices these days? Well, I think they're terribly high. I think somebody is gouging us. Yes, I do. Has it prevented you from doing anything? I mean, have you reduced your driving at all? I can't say I've reduced it because uh, the trips I make, I feel I have to make. When you live in Bowbells, you have to closest town is 70 miles away. What do you think about gas prices? A lot cheaper here than a lot of places. So obviously you know, it hasn't really affected you that much. Oh, heck no. You need gas, you need gas. You're going to pay whatever they, they post on it. It's the economy in the United States, you know, it's, it's, it's oil-based. Uh, I'm going to pause it right there again, Kenny. Gas prices today in the U.S., 14 years after this was recorded, what are they? I'm looking at the AAA website right now and today as we record this national average is two dollars 268 268 so a bit less than it was in 2005 when when these individuals are complaining about being gouged on on prices uh, at three plus dollars a gallon what does that say about where we've come over the last 14 years i mean it seems to me to be a very stable environment you know from from an economic perspective around one of these base costs in people's lives there was some inflation in that period so gas prices did go up but you know looking at we were slightly lower than where we were 15 years ago and and there's things happening in the market that weren't really even being talked about then right the people in that documentary then they wouldn't be thinking about teslas they wouldn't be thinking about energy you know recharging points springing up uh, infrastructure for that being created uh, looking specifically the uk the backlash against diesel vehicles that market is changing incredibly quickly one of the actual um, other things that happened as a result of this which Im- impacts infrastructure investment is that the u.s pays for its road infrastructure by charging a, a levy on gasoline and cars became more fuel efficient post this era of U.S. history. I mean, before that, you had a lot of SUVs and a lot of gas guzzlers. People didn't mind. After that, people took into more consideration the hybrids came into the market, which has then led into, you know, the EV market, which Tesla currently sits in. And cars have become less fuel efficient, which means that there's actually less tax revenue being generated as a result of selling of, of, of gasoline. So you can see how this is a beginning turning point for putting a pinch on how we economically afford and pay for our transportation infrastructure. And that's such a live issue in the U.S., right? The, the state of American infrastructure is a subject that we are definitely going to come back to on future episodes. Let's continue. America's oil-based economy sucks up over 20 billion barrels a day, according to the U.S. Department of Energy. That is roughly one in every four barrels used globally. Of that 20 million, over half get burned by motor vehicles on America's streets and highways. In North Dakota, the problem is amplified because of its sparse rural population. According to the state's Department of Transportation, North Dakota has more vehicles registered than it has residents. And with a small population of less than 650,000 people, it has more miles of road per capita than any other U.S. state. People in North Dakota rely heavily on their cars, and like many Americans, they are driving more, not less. Paul Roberts says that's because prices here aren't actually high enough to affect America's open road economy. 
it's hard to know exactly why we're driving, but it is true generally that we're driving more this year than last year and more last year than the year before, despite the fact that prices are high. So for all the complaining that consumers do about high gas prices, we haven't really changed our patterns that much. And, and when you look, when you adjust these prices for inflation, they're not as high as they have been. The gasoline is still quite a good deal. And that's really what matters when people, to the extent that consumers do the math. While bad news for drivers, high oil prices are actually good news for many people here in western North Dakota. To find out why, I drove 45 miles east of Williston to meet with Clifford Iverson. He's the son of Clarence Iverson, a farmer whose land near Tioga provided North Dakota with its first drop of oil over 55 years ago. Pulling up on a gravel road less than a mile from his family farm, we stepped out of the car to see a stone monument and a piece of North Dakota history. And this is it, huh? This is the monument here. Could you read that for me, maybe? Well, sure. So oil was first discovered in North Dakota by Amarillo Petroleum Corporation, April 4th, 1951. This Williston Basin discovery, Clarence Iverson number one, opened a new era for North Dakota and reaffirmed the confidence of her people in the opportunities and future of this great state. Dedicated October 25th, 1953, Tioga, North Dakota. And how old were you in, in 1953? 53, I was... Uh, 22 years old. Iverson recalls a curiosity that preceded this historic discovery. He says Amarada Petroleum actually had to hire guards to keep people from getting too close to the derrick while they were drilling. It turns out that the curiosity was warranted. Though not the first attempt at finding oil in North Dakota, it was the first to produce the resource. With oil came jobs and more money for the area and its landowners. Yeah, oil has benefited a lot of people, a lot of farmers, and benefited from everybody in the state of North Dakota. Your oil tax... Uh, the Iverson well pumped oil for nearly 30 years. Lynn Helms was working for Amarada Hess when they shut down that historic first well. Today, Helms is the director of North Dakota's Department of Mineral Resources. He oversees the regulation of the state's oil and gas industry, as well as the Geological Survey Division, which promotes the state's mineral resources. Helms described for me the turbulent nature of the oil industry. It wasn't that long ago, just uh, six or seven years ago, we were talking about how few drilling rigs there were working in North Dakota. We, in fact, hit zero rigs in February of 1999, which was the first time since oil discovery. Of recent, with the supply and demand coming into balance worldwide and every barrel being produced around the world having a place to go and, and to be consumed, oil prices have been on the increase. And so we are actually back on an inflated basis to oil prices like we saw in the late 1970s. And that is fueling a boom in oil and gas exploration and drilling again. There were nearly 40 drilling rigs operating on the 4th of July in western North Dakota. And the state's job service had over 300 listings in that area. About one-third of them in the oil industry. This flurry of new activity makes North Dakota the ninth largest producer in the U.S. And, according to Helms, oil production generated a quarter of the state tax revenue last year, or roughly $100 million. If prices continue to stay above $70, he thinks that figure could be as high as $150 million this year. But the boom has not come without some problems. Helms says pipeline capacity issues decreased production and cost the state an estimated $14 million in taxes. In addition, the rising oil prices fueling the boom have been a burden on North Dakota's biggest industry, farming and ranching. Fertilizer and fuel costs are on the rise, and North Dakota Farmers Union President Robert Carlson says the average 1,400-acre farm will feel a significant financial pinch this summer. We estimated that the average North Dakota farm would see costs increase by $18,000 per year from the higher fertilizer and fuel prices. That was when we were back at about the $2.50 level. Uh, it would be higher than that. It would be over 20000 now. Jared Goffian is 28 years old and farms about 6,000 acres with his two uncles near Alamo, North Dakota. 
Of that, about 1,400 acres is land he rents and farms on his own. Goffian says they will probably use 5,000 gallons of diesel fuel for this year's harvest, which for the past three weeks has been wilting in a national heat wave. It isn't good for any plant if it's flowering and it's in the heat and the heat, you know, it really cuts it down. And fuel, fuel cost this year has been just terrible. We're about 23 miles north of Williston and driving out to look at a field of peas he says we'll be ready to harvest any day now. When we get out of the vehicle, he tells me how changing technology has helped farmers like him use less fuel by avoiding the plow. Whereas farmers used to frequently plow fields, new seeding equipment allows them to plant crops without tilling up the soil, and chemical sprays kill unwanted weeds in unplanted fields. For a tractor to pull a sprayer over the field, the, the fuel cost is minimal. I can spray 1,500 acres on 100 gallons of fuel. You know, it's cheap compared to, you know, if you're working the ground pulling a chisel plower or cultivator, you're probably a gallon an acre you're using, you know. So you're actually using less fuel? We're using less fuel and we're seeding more acres. Some of the acres being seeded are for crops that can be used to produce alternative fuels like E85 ethanol, a kind of grain alcohol distilled from corn which can be blended into gasoline, or biodiesel, a natural equivalent to regular diesel fuel produced from canola or soybeans. So while profit margins have been thinned by static grain prices and higher production costs, Robert Carlson says more and more farmers are trying to make up for it in the developing biofuels market. The only caveat to that about the relationship between farm prices and petroleum prices would be that these high petroleum prices have really spurred the development of ethanol and biodiesel. And so that has given farmers another market for their crops, especially corn, and with the developing biodiesel uh, production, oilseed crops like canola and soybean. All right, Kenny, pause game here. This bit of the documentary doesn't age so well. It's not that it wasn't factual at the time, but I think what happened as a result of this push into biofuels is that people suddenly made a huge amount of investment off the back of high energy prices. Um, We started to divert a lot of crop towards fuel products when in actual fact we probably need those crops to feed people. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of investment made into biofuels and that has not panned out quite, quite as much as we do. I mean, you don't really hear people talking about biofuel targets today as you did back then that's right and you can you can see why at the time that made sense and and would even increasingly make sense you know the highest recorded diesel price in the u.s was four dollars 84 in in july 2008 so you could see how at those prices you would go heavy into into those markets into those products but those prices didn't last going back to the food comment i believe there was a challenge in mexico around tortilla prices because of corn being diverted. Um, Corn is a heavily subsidized crop in the U.S. and it was being diverted into um, biofuels, which meant that the the demand was was, was higher and therefore people were selling it uh, for fuel instead of for tortillas, which uh, obviously, if you love Mexican food, it would make you very upset. (laughs) All right, let's go. Let's crack on. We'll also fund additional research in cutting-edge methods of producing ethanol, not just from corn, but from wood chips and stalks or switchgrass. Our goal is to make this new kind of ethanol practical and competitive within six years. Nationally, alternative fuels like ethanol and biodiesel have been touted by President Bush in an attempt to lessen Americans' dependence on foreign oil. However... America burns so much oil, even if every bushel of corn was used to produce ethanol, Carlson says the U.S. still wouldn't supply enough to make us totally self-reliant domestically. That means America will have to look to another fuel source if it truly wants to kick its foreign oil addiction. So let's stop it there. I think that's interesting because that kind of reflects back on what we were talking about at the start, right? America kicking its dependence on 
foreign energy imports by looking for alternative sources. So what has happened in those years? Because I feel like that situation has changed. Well, a few years ago, I went to an event, the opening of a hydrogen refueling station, and there were a number of fuel cell-powered vehicles, which the documentary does go into here in a moment. But just at this at that time, I asked the company representative from Toyota, how many fuel cell vehicles do you sell in the UK every year? So they built this new hydrogen refueling station in East London. So Kenny, take a crack at this one. How many hydrogen fuel cell vehicles were sold in the UK? This would have been, say, 2016. In the hundreds. Less than a hundred. No, come on. <laughs> I think there was something like 25 or 30, uh, if, I, if I remember correctly. It wasn't a large number. Yeah, so, I yeah. mean, you know, there's... But it's a chicken and egg thing, right? You know, until you have the, the refueling infrastructure, people aren't going to be confident to do it. And plus, these are 60,000 pound cars, you know, for the for the basic model. Um, so, you know, there's, it's not a, a introductory price point that your average Joe on the street is going to consider. So... But I do think hydrogen is a very important fuel source for the future, whether it's fuel cell vehicles or whether it's just even internal combustion, which um, why don't we listen on and find out more about hydrogen vehicles. Let's do it. Here we go. These are bumper cars at the North Dakota State Fair. They are one of many carnival rides at this annual summer event, which also features star-studded concerts, commercial trade booths, food booths, and a general celebration of the state's rural culture. The fairgrounds are located about 120 miles east of Williston in Minot, and I've come not to see these bumper cars, but hydrogen-powered vehicles on display by the University of North Dakota's Energy and Environmental Research Center. Hydrogen, the most abundant element on Earth, can be produced many different ways, and is widely seen by many energy analysts as a bridge between oil and fueling the future. What really excites people here is the possibility of using the state's renewable wind resources. U.S. Senator Byron Dorgan says North Dakota is the Saudi Arabia of wind to generate hydrogen from water using electrolysis. Materials engineer and physicist at the EERC, Kirk Williams, explained. The idea here is that we're utilizing uh, some wind turbines in a dynamic scheduling capacity to run a hydrogenics electrolyzer. And that electrolyzer uses water and that will produce the, the hydrogen fuel. The hydrogen fuel will be compressed and stored, and then that will be able to be dispensed into vehicles. Using hydrogen as a transportation fuel is one of the EERC's focal points at the fair. On display are a number of hydrogen-powered vehicles. Some of them, standard Chevy half-ton pickup trucks with internal combustion engines, have been retrofitted to burn hydrogen as well as E85 ethanol and standard gasoline. Other vehicles on display run on hydrogen fuel cells. Fuel cells are like rechargeable batteries that don't require charging. Rather, they are powered by hydrogen and oxygen in an electrochemical process. Using a transparent toy car, Kirk Williams showed me how fuel cells and electrolyzers work to produce hydrogen from water and energy from hydrogen. Here we show a, we got a little toy vehicle that uh, is also an electrolyzer and a fuel cell, and it demonstrates the fact that a fuel cell can do either. So we've applied external power to the electrolyzer. We're generating the hydrogen gas. We're generating the oxygen gas. You can see the water level dropping significantly, and that because it's being displaced by the hydrogen gas. We can then stop the external reaction. And now we'll turn the switch. And on this little model car, we are now utilizing the hydrogen in the fuel cell 
and it is turning an electric motor, which is turning the wheels. Fuel cells only emit heat, water vapor, and power. So why haven't quiet, clean fuel cells replaced the noisy, oil-powered engines that currently drive most of our cars? Well, cost for one thing. According to Paul Roberts, fuel cells are extremely expensive. He also says hydrogen is a compressed gas which takes up more tank space and delivers less power than petroleum products like gasoline and diesel fuel. But as oil prices rise and research advances bring fuel cell costs down, Kirk Williams expects the green side of hydrogen to sell the technology as global warming becomes more of a concern. Cost really isn't the only driving factor because you figure you've also got the idea that uh, uh, hydrogen is a more green fuel. It's, uh, it's more environmentally friendly. It's, it's non-polluting, which makes it eventually will make it more economical. A hydrogen-fueled revolution won't happen overnight. In the meantime, global warming, violence in the Middle East, and unstable political conditions in oil-producing countries will remain heavy shadows hanging over the petroleum economy. Israel has called it an act of war. The capture of two Israeli... As I drove around North Dakota interviewing people, a major conflict broke out between Israel and Hezbollah on the Lebanese border. That crisis alone nearly pushed oil prices up to $80 a barrel, adding to what Lynn Helms estimates to be a $30 risk premium. In addition, rapid economic growth in heavily populated India and China has significantly increased global demand for oil. Finding new barrels of cheaply produced conventional oil to meet that demand is becoming a greater challenge for producers. Instead, they've turned to more expensive places like North Dakota, where this latest boom has reestablished local faith in oil. And while there is talk about energy dependence and alternative fuels, America has mostly remained business as usual which here in Williston on the 4th of July means parades, fireworks, and dirt track auto racing. That's the end of the documentary. It's a nice way to end it. I like the way you kind of started and ended with that. Really nice. I know. High radio, high high production values, that's what we're getting here. Circle of life. The hero's journey. I mean, while, while I, I noticed you were flicking around on your iPad there, why? I wasn't why bored. We were I wasn't bored. Hydrogen-powered <laughs> vehicles. What did you find? Well, I was just I was interested because you said there had been like thirty vehicles sold in the UK when you when you asked around, and I'm just saying Toyota. Just seeing an article here, uh, Toyota predicts thirty thousand annual car sales in 2020. That's from Toyota, and there's multiple manufacturers, each with their own different models on sale. You know, they're still expensive vehicles right just like the teslas they're still out of the price range of lots of people but that's a big that's a big growth rate from from where it started with you know 30 vehicles i'm i'm impressed with that number actually uh and um and hopeful uh as well because um you know i mean i would love to be able to you know consider uh, a fuel cell vehicle as, as an option next time i need a new car when this podcast goes global and then gets bought by spotify <laughs> could it be in good shape for buying fancy cars exactly <laughs> Just one other thing I want to touch on, um, just wrapping this whole episode up, and as I think forward to all the episodes that are coming up, I mean, we've got um, Richard Threffel coming up in the next episode, who's a colleague of mine from KPMG and, and who knows um, you know, the big picture of what's going on globally on infrastructure, travels you know, all around the world and gets to talk to people about it, which is a, is a great luxury and, and advantage. And KPMG, I mean, this is really looking forward, right? KPMG, yeah. their, their, their uh, infrastructure insights every year. And so I think it's really interesting to, to go from this, looking at where we've come from, into where, where is the market going? What is the future of infrastructure? I think that's an interesting conversation. And, and I think just reflecting on, on that documentary in the end there, where we heard about some of the geopolitical drivers, they haven't changed. Mm-hmm. You know, global warming, climate change, still an issue today. 
conflict in oil producing countries still an issue today energy security energy supply still an issue today i mean for as much as things seem to be shaping the future they also seem to be stuck in the, in, in the same challenges and I, I guess i look forward to to talking through some of those issues with some of our experts that we're able to bring on to this program yeah, and, yeah, and find out you know what's in store for infrastructure investment for the next 10 years that's right we're going to be speaking to people who are you know building out you know charging infrastructure so charging into that market if you pardon that and then, and then, you know, old technologies that seem to have taken a long time to get to market, things like wave power, um, which have taken seem to have taken a long time to mature, but also technologies that now seem very mature, even though they're they're relatively new. So, massive advance, advances in wind and solar, we're seeing, and, and I'm involved in some projects in the Middle East. You're seeing incredibly low tariffs being bid on 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 renewable energy projects. And I think um, what's interesting for me, from my perspective, in terms of the work I currently do, focusing on emerging and developing markets and trying to bring more infrastructure investment into into those markets, is the opportunity for them to leapfrog some of these traditional technologies that we are now burdened with in in, yep. in our our um, more mature economies, uh, and being able to go straight to some of these technological solutions without having to deal with the redundancy issue of of the existing infrastructure state, and so. Very interested to, to talk with people from um, the development community and, and find out, you know, how we can how we can engage that and do that in, in the countries that you're also working in um, in Africa as well. So yeah, yeah. Well, this has been a long one, good mm-hmm. one. You know, some good work there. And, and over the next few episodes, we're going to be exploring a lot of the issues that that documentary you couldn't have known it at the time, right? No. But that you would be sitting here these all these years later, looking back. Um, and now with what you know now and the, and, and, and the, you know, the topics that we're going to explore in this podcast, I think it's great. I think so too. I'm happy to say there's no more documentaries that I've produced yet. So um, <laughs> we, don't have to, we don't have to listen to any more in future episodes. It's all new content, fresh. Great stuff. Next time. Next time. The Project is an independent podcast produced by Kenny Whitelaw-Jones and John Jorstadt. The project is sponsored by Gridlines, and you can find out more at project-podcast.com.